Okay, yeah, so what is it? What, daily duty? Daily duties. Uh, yeah. Um, I, joined, I didn't look it up. I joined this Whitest Kids You Know Facebook group, mm-hmm. and someone was asking about what accounts Trevor Moore had on Instagram, because apparently he had a bunch of like fake or niche or whatever kind of accounts. And someone, somebody was like, oh, Daily Duty's the only one that I had heard of. And I fucking looked it up because I was like, what is that? I wonder what he's placing. <laughs> it's literally shit. It's literally his daily shit. And they look so unhealthy. Ew. Oh, literally his... What? This, this looks like chili. <laughs> I'm going to gag. They all look... And I'm like, all of these are really, really bad. Some so, of these look like scorpions. Like, this motherfucker oh. was not healthy. I'll let you guys analyze those. Is it actually him? When I typed it in, there were multiple pages of that. It wasn't just his. Okay. So other accounts on Instagram and like people, people pay for that literal shit. People pay for that. Remind. There's remind money your, in it. Remind yourself. <laughs> Speaking of shit. Oh, we're starting a show now. Do the thing. Are, are we shit? Speaking of shit. Is the Death by Podcast team, as we always do, speak of shit. Yes. Hello, everybody, and welcome oh. to Death by Music Podcast. I am Jake, as always. I'm here with Cassie and Alex. Hi. Hello. And today we are bringing you an episode on Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. Well, more Jerry Garcia, but yeah, it's, great. it's Grateful Dead. Yeah. But um, sliding on back into that shit talk, uh, Trevor Moore of Whitey's Kids You Know. Um, we mentioned this on the Patreon episode, too, for Kurt Cobain. Trevor Moore passed away. Which is really fucking upsetting. And if you don't know who this guy is, you should. We reference Whitest Kids You Know a lot. It's like so ingrained in our vocabulary and senses of humor and culture. (laughs) I'm wearing my gallon of PCP shirt right now. Yep. My boss gave me a look today at work, he, but I don't think he knows what it was. I don't know if he knows what PCP is. He was like, your hair is green and your shirt is pink. Oh, that's all. And he those cares. colors, and I was like, okay, cool, because I thought he was going to be like, why are you wearing a T-shirt with a gallon of PCP on it? It comes oh, you in look liquid like a form? watermelon. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. He was like very <laughs> intrigued by the color combo, but yeah, so I'm wearing my gallon of PCP shirt in honor of Trevor Moore. But he was only like 41, and they haven't released what his cause of death was. But I don't know. It's just really sad. So go watch some Whitest Kids You Know videos. They're fucking hilarious. And he also had a show called The Trevor Trevor Moore Show, which just came out on Comedy Central. It's had a few episodes. I couldn't tell. I was watching it and I was like, am I really stupid or is he really funny? Yes. Probably He's both. Really funny. <laughs> <laughs> just, yes. So yeah, I mentioned it on the Patreon. Trevor Moore is somebody that I would love to cover eventually because he was also a musician as well as being a comedian. But that's something that's going to require a lot of digging because he's young you know and this just happened he wasn't like hugely supremely famous but there's got to be some way that i can get information well that and then the the whitest kids you know group that you added me to Mm -hmm. um they keep posting the cause of his death but then when you click on the link it is just them rickrolling you so i'm (laughs) over it (laughs) stop it (laughs) i love it yeah it's been it's been a really nice group to be a part of it made my day so anyways um that was one thing our second order of business pertains to the mini episode that did not come out on Monday because Cassie deleted it. It was an accident. <laughs> Accidentally deleted it, but still deleted it. It's okay. It was going to be, I don't think we're going to cover it again, unfortunately. And the mini episode was going to be on um, Slash and why he wears his top hat and where that whole thing came from. I don't know. Maybe we can record it again. That's what I said. We've probably already forgotten what most yeah. of what we said so even Pretty if we much. were to read it over again it would still be oh yeah we're... it might be fresh we'll, we'll probably cover we'll, it we'll in the save future. it for yeah later later on yeah you know and we've only had to do that once so far this whole run of this podcast so that with bobby fuller remember the audio was all fucked up oh yeah and we had to record it twice and it was better the second time honestly it was it was much better. That was just the universe saying, do it again. Because you guys you suck. You dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> do it again, you dumbass. <laughs> Thanks, universe. Um, yeah, Gotta so I'd say... keep us in check. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good odds right there if, if we've only had accidentally deleted two episodes worth of audio after all the stuff that we've been doing. Well, the first one was a technological error. The second one was me. <laughs> yes. But also an error because it was there and then it was not there. I don't know how you managed to do it. I was just like, are you fucking know. kidding me? 
Yeah, you were mad. It's okay. I was trying not to be. I was really... uh, I I know, you just, like, didn't talk, and I was like, she mad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you were like, I can try to recover it, and I was like, please don't touch anything, and I will be there later. (laughs) Don't lose your shit. It ended up being less work for me, so it's fine. Well, anyways, let's do our stuff. Yeah, did you guys put sources in? Because I sure did. I think I only used (laughs) Wikipedia. I... My sources are listed in what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think I only use Wikipedia, honestly. I hate that you use BenJerry.com. <laughs> I don't. They, I they have had the, to find information. That's where oh I went. Gosh. They have the Cherry Garcia ice cream that yeah. you're going to mention, I'm sure, yeah. because that's the source. <laughs> um, that was the first time that I had ever heard of Jerry Garcia was because of Cherry Garcia ice cream. And I was like, what? You that's know? funny. I was like, oh, he's there's a LSD guy. in it. Did you know? Oh, yeah, dude, that's <laughs> I'm awesome. Going to buy that's some why right the pints now. are so expensive. Where's the PCP ice cream? You gotta uh, buy it in gallons. Yes. Make milk chugs. <laughs> such a bitchy. It's going to be my Halloween costume. Oh, I, I put what, a it, gallon I, of PCP. Yeah, she's gonna be in the. the, the I um I put my shirt in the whitest kids you know group today and i was like let's see everyone's merch and somebody commented back and they had the poop balls t-shirt and i was like yes i fucking need it they said that they got it at one of their tours in like 2013 so our sources Ah. today always wikipedia jerrygarcia.com biography which is an a and e tv series Hooter Roland, I think that's it. Hooterrolling.blogspot.com. jerry's carves from 1960 to 1970 Okay. And then BenJerry.com. So uh, we do hope that you've got your hula hoops and lava lamps ready because this episode's going to be groovy. We have to give one to the deadheads out there. We're taking a step into the counterculture of the 1960s to talk about the founding, um, one of the founding members of the Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia. I spent the longest time avoiding listening to their music because with a name like Grateful Dead, I just assumed they were some type of metal band. So you I need like to lose your hate for metal. Yeah. It's everything but metal. It is quite literally everything but metal metal yeah uh this was the ultimate i mean grateful dead they're the ultimate psychedelic jam band and jerry was known for his technical abilities his improvisational skills and his mastery of many instruments there are like three different timelines that we're gonna follow in this story this dude's got all of his grateful dead and professional stuff going on plus the timeline of his drug use and then his ever complicated relationships so try to keep up so jerome garcia was born in the excelsior district of san francisco california on august 1st 1942 shout out to stanley fans excelsior was his life motto and stanley has absolutely nothing to do with jerry garcia but please continue wait what don't worry about it okay. the comic book nerds will get it nerd shit okay. yeah it was also in silver linings playbook which is a great movie. Okay. <laughs> His parents were Jose Ramon, Joe Garcia, and Ruth Marie Bobby Garcia. Jose's family had immigrated from Spain in 1919. Jerry was named after beloved American composer Jerome Kern, known for musicals like Showboat, The Cat and the Fiddle. I never heard of that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah, Cat and the Fiddle. Um, Jerome was the youngest of two children, and he had an older brother, Clifford Ramon, who was nicknamed Tiff, short for Tiffany. Or Clifford. No, for <laughs> um, that brother was born in 1937. Uh, I've got an uncle Jerome. Me too. Uh, he bought the entire Lego Castle collection uh, when we lived with him briefly in the late 90s, just so he could play with them. And uh, he let me keep all of them uh, after we moved, and I still have them. So shout out cool. Jerome. Yeah. Jose, their father, and his friend leased a building in downtown San Francisco that they turned into a bar. Mostly because he was blackballed from the musicians' union for working under the table. You know, not legally reporting the money he earned. Mm. Yeah, taking a page out of the handbook of some of our multimillionaires here in the U.S. Uh, Pro tip, that only works when you already have money to cover it up. It's obvious Garcia was influenced by music when he was a kid. He took piano lessons for most of his childhood, and since his father was a (laughs) retired musician, um, and his mom played piano herself, the the only, or it was only fitting that Jerry would hop in and learn. The Garcia's family was extended, it was huge, and whenever they reunited, they would play and sing music. Bitch, I got extendos. Okay. (laughs) In 1946... Garcia lost two-thirds of his right middle finger when it was cut off by his own brother during a wood-splitting accident while the family was vacationing in Santa Cruz. It's fine, though, because obviously it didn't affect his musicianship at all, and Jerry somehow 
like stated that after it happened it made him cooler like he would show all the like neighborhood kids like hey look at my finger I it's mean, missing yeah. yeah but who's letting their children play with woodcutters did it this- johnny cash yeah but they so the parents that was weren't the brother around. and they were yeah. like the kid went through the wood splitter yeah Ooh. okay yeah johnny cash's brother died in like a wood cutting accident. it was like oh, a, a, a table like a, like table a table circuit. what yeah. that, that <laughs> makes me think of uh what was that fried green t- uh, tomatoes where I've the kid got where he uh the, the guy falls off the tractor and he gets eaten up by the the, oh, the oh. blades and the machine in the back yeah yeah johnny cash's older brother jack they they were messing around with like they had like a table saw or something you know he, when he was a kid obviously it was way way back in the day when child labor was a thing so i don't think it was that odd for his older brother to be messing around with the saw so they were just kind of in his dad's shop and johnny was like sitting around doing whatever and then his brother um ended up cutting himself right in the middle uh, with his table saw and then he he died as that like a child did not know that yeah those old table saws didn't have safeties on them really they're just yeah it was an exposed blade I mean, and this had to be in like the 30s yeah it definitely didn't 40s. have that that flip up guard or anything uh-uh. like that nope so yeah yeah uh well anyways according to his brother tiff he didn't <laughs> chop it all the way off <laughs> anyways uh, children died. a little bit more info on yeah. uh yeah, according to his brother Tiff, he didn't chop it all the way off. It was bad enough that they had to amputate because they didn't get the surgery in time. So, you know, plus it's the forties; kids were way more robust back then. What I think does that mean? they were heftier. What do you mean robust? Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they were they resilient. They just they be take chopping. a licking and keep on ticking. You know, it's wow, Tiffin, you're you're aging yourself. <laughs> that is a weird phrase. Yeah, never I've heard it. Never <laughs> 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 what what was it again? They took a take a licking and keep on ticking i don't like wow. it yeah i've never heard that it does sound weird now <laughs> yeah yeah today sounds, <laughs> sounds weird. i'm concerned <laughs> i would be too i'll i'll, I'll stop talking now cool okay in Good. 1947 <laughs> jose garcia died in a fly fishing accident while the family was vacationing in Arctica. arcata arcata <laughs> maybe Arcata, while the family was vacationing Vacationing in Arcata. He slipped while he was walking walking into the Trinity River and drowned before any of the other fishermen could reach him. Mm. Jerry claims to have seen the accident, but author Dennis McNally in his book, A Long Strange Trip, The Inside Story of the Grateful Dead, argues that Garcia formed the memory after hearing others tell the story. Journalist Blair Jackson, author of Garcia and American Life, argues that a local newspaper article described Jose's death and failed to mention Jerry being present at the time. But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm Y'all trying to oh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. trying, oh, trying, yeah. trying to get them on there. Yeah. We all artists, man. We go you feel me, we're gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta don't lie, play don't it, play with it. No. Take that shit seriously. Yeah, that's some type of false memory formation. I tried looking it up to see if there was some weird fancy name for it, but there really wasn't that I could find. And mm. then I tried to read about it, and I started falling asleep. See, so. this is why you take so long to contribute to these because you're saying how you spend like two and a half hours every night and it's because you're going down rabbit holes yeah (laughs) i'm like what i mean sometimes it's necessary but we were talking about false memories the other day Mm -hmm. why i don't remember it was because of this episode so what i looked up it was just saying like obviously false or misleading information leads to a false recollection (laughs) of an event or idea from there our first memory (laughs) i'm gonna start over (laughs) i'm gonna leave it in stupid (laughs) so faulty or misleading information obviously leads us to falsely recollect an event or idea but from there our false memory becomes more vivid as time passes stop laughing at me (laughs) making it seem more believable so this may happen because our minds continue to add new information to like an already established event and if you're an overthinker like me Mm -hmm. i'm gonna just assume the worst out of every possible scenario so it just 
is unable you're unable to recall these events properly because you've added your own context or something yeah. that didn't happen you think has happened yeah and you're it's filling like in the details any i mean that happens a lot with children though too but like memory is malleable and you will right, right. you will not remember something or maybe you were there but you don't remember all of the details not on your own but then when other people start filling in the story for you then you start to create these false memories mm-hmm. of like oh i do remember seeing that and it's like right. no you don't that's also how police work when they're interrogating people they'll feed you little tidbits and they'll they'll feed you little things and then all of a sudden when at first you you don't remember anything that happened because you weren't fucking there then you start taking the little things that they're subtly feeding to you and you're like constructing your brain is filling in the blanks and constructing a whole false confession or whatever based on things that they told you yep so it happens all the time he might have been there he might not have been there you've been interrogated by the police because i sure have not no i got a clean record okay <laughs> for now but after i kill your neighbor i'm yeah. just kidding i'm not gonna do that all right it's the second mention that's a reference to something that's <laughs> happening in the future for you guys and you guys have no idea so wait that's across two episodes too oh yeah <laughs> it hasn't even happened yet look <laughs> we're time hoppers we're clock stoppers <laughs> Did you see this watch? If you it's get fine. a licking and no, something about sticking and I hate it. And, uh, okay. <clears throat> After Jerry's father died, his mom bought out the bar and then she started running it full time. And since she obviously had her hands full trying to support the family, she sent the boys off to live with her parents. Jerry was allowed to have a pretty free childhood and was recognized early on for his artistic and creative abilities. His grandmother was very interested in bluegrass music and the Grand Ole Opry. And then after being exposed to that kind of music, Jerry picked up the banjo. Did he have any epic duels? Not with Satan. Oh. (laughs) I used to have a banjo, but I had to sell it in college for rent money. I remember that. Mm -hmm. By 1953, Jerry's mom had remarried to a man named Wally Matuzik. Matuzik. Jake. I'm working on it. Wally Wally Matuzik. Matuzik. I bet bet my mother could I know a kid whose name is Matuzik. And it's spelled kind of like this, but there are like six letters that you don't pronounce. So I'm going to say that this guy is called Wally Matuzix. I don't think you pronounce that W there. What about I'm the fucking, Z? I'm fucking confused. So anyways, she married this dude. And then the boys went back to live with her in Menlo Park, which was a rough part of town, apparently, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I googled Menlo Park just because I was like, this sounds familiar. And it seems to still be dangerous because the top story of today was like a man brandishing a weapon, slinging it around to people at a grocery store. And I was like, I don't know why this sounded familiar to me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So here, Jerry was introduced to racism and anti-Semitism. I think his his new stepdad was Jewish. So he formed strong opinions against these ideas. Yeah, I'm glad he was smart enough to go in that direction. It definitely makes the world a better place. I had to read that phrase twice, and the way you phrased it made it seem like someone was going door to door with a pamphlet introducing other people. And I (laughs) was like, "Have you heard about anti-Semitism? Like, is he your Lord and Savior?" No, he just experienced it like running around as a kid there. Like everyone was just real fucking racist, and um, he was like, "Yep, I don't like that." Yeah. Well, it's just more proof that it's learned behavior. Mm -hmm. So Jerry's brother at the time was becoming interested in blues and rock and roll music in the form of Ray Charles, John Lee Hooker, and Chuck Berry. Now, um, Cliff, what do we call him? Tiff? He would learn uh, the vocals, and then he would have Jerry sing harmonies. So basically, Jerry became kind of self-taught with ear training and picking out tunes. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the smell of burning rope. I don't get it. What Drugs? Do you, do you really? That's I, what they say marijuana smells like. I googled the phrase and it seemed to pertain more to crack usage. Oh. So you're wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I remember going to um, Amsterdam as a child. Um, I was like 10 years old and we took a trip and um, my mom said, because I don't know what the fuck weed smelled like. I was 10. It smells like skunk. I don't know what skunk smell like either. So it's not really helpful. I also don't know what burning rope smells like. But she told me that like, I don't know. My parents have never smoked weed. Um, That that that's what it smelled like. It was the smell of burning rope is marijuana. 
Interesting. I don't know. What have you guys heard? I don't fucking know. I just don't know what any of this... I know what weed smells like now. Okay, so as far as the burning rope, that's what I've heard as far as weed goes. Maybe it's crack, and I made a mistake. But Jerry first <laughs> smoked weed with a friend in the San Francisco foothills. So they rolled up two joints, and they got ripped. They were laughing. They were skipping around town and having a blast. Jerry was in college at the San Francisco Art Institute. Um, I don't believe that this was a college at the time, just an art school. uh, So you could kind of just go in there and take classes as a high school student. Um, He was working on drawing and painting until his family moved back to San Francisco. Yeah, he studied with OG beatnik Wally Hedrick, whose, uh, whose quote contributions to art include pioneering artworks in psychedelic light art, uh, mechanical kinetic sculpture, junk slash assemblage sculpture and pop art and California funk art. Cool. Yeah. Um, so they moved in over the family's new bar. If you remember, they had a bar previously. That one had been torn down to accommodate freeway construction. So they moved in over the new one. When Jerry turned 15, his mom got him an accordion. He was not stoked. And he was wrong for that. He could have been the OG Weird Al. No. He ain't that funny. Um, Eventually, she returned the accordion because he was so disappointed and got him a Dan Electro and an amp. Boring. All the cool people play accordion like Chris Novoselic and Weird Al. I didn't know he played accordion. No, uh, no. Chris Novoselic bust out an accordion in the the live sessions, the MTV uh, Unplugged. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did talk about that. Mm Mm-hmm. I should listen to our Patreon, which is only $5, patreon.com slash team and has two episodes on Kurt Cobain. In 10th grade, Jerry was starting to get into a lot of trouble. He was fighting. He was skipping classes, probably to smoke pot. Yeah. Uh, the family moved again in 1959 to Casadero, which is north of San Francisco. Honestly, it wasn't the best idea because it meant that Jerry had to take the bus 30 miles each way to get to school. And if there's anything worse than high school, it's wasting two hours or more of your day sitting on the damn bus to get to and from. I'm sure the fact that it was called Annally High School oh at God. the time didn't help. But who knows? Some people <laughs> might like going to Annally. I wish that. W- what's their mascot? Brown Star? That's <laughs> oh not what their mascot is. They renamed the high school uh, several years I ago. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> No That's clue. fucking awesome. Um, the good thing was Jerry was able to join a band at the school called The Chords, and they got to record a song after winning like a little talent contest. They chose to record Raunchy by Bill Justice. That was a cool album cover. I looked up that album. I think I might have to buy it. Hmm. The original song itself gives like if Richie Valens or any of the surf rockers got kicked in the butt with some spurs, <laughs> like it's more Midwestern or more Western than I imagined. Okay. But it was one of the first rock songs to use twang on the lead guitar effect. Also, fun fact, in 1958, George Harrison performed this song for John and pa- or for John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It looks like John and Paul McCartney. <laughs> 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 the top of a deck bus in Liverpool. And they were in such awe of George. They actually they led him into the Quarrymen, which later became the Beatles. The Beatles. Now, Garcia was starting to kind of be a little shit. He stole his mom's car in 1960. And after that, he was given some options. He could go to the army, the army. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He could go into the army or go to prison. He chose the army, um, but it really didn't give him any more structure in his life. He was still showing up late to roll call and racking up a bunch of AWOL counts. So he ended up being discharged by the end of the year. And I think they call these people burnouts. I prefer the term free spirits. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so according to a 1972 Rolling Stone interview, Jerry explained that in the late 50s, we moved up to Casadero and I went to high school for about a year, did really badly, finally quit and joined the army. That's okay. He just mm-hmm. completely evades the fact that he stole a car. Yeah. Um, he said, I decided I was going to get away from everything. So I joined the army, smuggled my guitar in. I lasted nine months. So it wasn't even a full year. He said, I was at Fort Ord. Then they transferred me to the Presidio in San Francisco, overlooking the water at the Golden Gate Bridge. It started me into acoustic guitar. Up until that time, I had been mostly into electric guitar, rock and roll stuff. Now, Jerry's recounting of the time in the military is much more peaceful than what actually occurred. According to some recently discovered military documents, Garcia's commanding officer, Captain John G. Downey Jr., says, I am aware that this man has had three battery punishments and one summary court martial during his relatively short period on assignment in this unit. What? On the 10th of November, 1960... 
I personally interviewed Garcia to determine whether or not he could be persuaded to make an effort to cooperate with me if I gave him another opportunity to prove himself. However, Garcia indicated to me on the 10th of November, 1960, that he had no desire to improve himself as a soldier and that a change of duty assignment or even a change in unit assignment would have had no bearing on his present defective attitude toward military life and that he was only interested in getting out of the army as soon as possible. Hmm. <laughs> Captain Downey continued saying, during my association with the respondent in this unit, I have found Garcia to be unreliable, irresponsible, immature, unwilling to accept, uh, accept authority and completely lacking in soldierly qualities. His conduct is unsatisfactory and his, or his efficiency is unsatisfactory. Damn. I predict that if this man remains in the military service, his character and behavior disorders will become more evident and quantitative. Just, he just okay. He just ripped him in the most <laughs> right. professional way possible. So, in another statement in his file, First Sergeant Walter L. Heller had similar, similarly unflattering things to say about Private Garcia. He says, during the first two weeks of the assignment here, Garcia came to my attention because of his personal uncleanliness oh and the God. filthy condition of his personal billeting area in the barracks. Look, <laughs> I counseled and advised his squad leader and the platoon sergeant that improvement was necessary shortly thereafter garcia was punished under article 15 of the code for willful disobedience of an nco and this seemed to set off a chain of behavior disorders on the part of garcia in my opinion garcia should be eliminated from the service under the service without delay i mean damn he really lucked out he didn't have to go to prison he joined the army and they were even like please just get out yeah (laughs) i didn't realize if he just didn't shower they i mean he probably had a dishonorable discharge you should see dan um should Try some of these methods out with the Marines. No. See what they'll do. They'll probably beat his <laughs> Well, he'll... Ass. No. Yeah, on that too. But the, you lose any of your, like, retirement oh, stuff. Okay. So, no. Well, well, fine, Dan. Don't take one for I the like team, health Dan. insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's January of 1961. Jerry wanted to drive down and see one of his middle school friends. He bought a 1950 Cadillac. So, it was already, you know it's already 11 years old and it ended up breaking down on the way so jerry just stayed with some friends as they let him and was living out of this car that wouldn't move Mm -hmm. no info on the uh what specific model cadillac it was but any 1950 caddy is going to be a mansion so he's probably living pretty good even though it didn't move yeah (laughs) in february jerry got into a car with his friends paul spiegel lee adams and alan trist They took a curve going about 90 miles per hour and hit the guardrail. The car rolled. It shot Jerry out through the windshield and um, ended up breaking his collarbone. His friend Lee suffered from abdominal injuries. Alan had a spinal fracture and Spiegel, I think, was the only person who was not ejected and his injuries in the car ended up killing him. Yeah, I also could not find info on what they were driving, uh, but I would assume it might have been 10 to 20 years old, so probably built in the 40s, early yeah. mid-50s. But doing 90 in any car from that era and crashing is practically a death sentence. It's amazing that any of them even survived. Yeah, Seat belts were still in their infancy at this point, uh, assuming the car even had any. Because there were very few cars back then that had them, and the ones that did, people were not using them honestly kind of good it seems that they weren't wearing seat belts because they got ejected and they were the ones who survived those cars were not built for wrecks there's yeah there's a huge they difference surely were not tested the way cars are now for no, safety they were not even remotely built the same as, as stuff you know now like yeah. getting in a, in a wreck in a modern car is like comparatively speaking it's like, it's like you're hitting a, a, a bed of pillows that mm-hmm. one something that old you're hitting a brick wall yeah and it's, it's a big big difference Well, that whole encounter and like losing his friend was a huge awakening for Jerry. After experiencing that tragedy, he realized that he wasn't living his life fully. And he looked at this as his second chance. He started to pick up his guitar more and set down the paintbrush to try and earn some money. Jerry met Robert Hunter in April of 1961. And that guy would go on to be Grateful Dead's lyricist. Um, they would play together across the South Bay and San Francisco scenes. In 1962, another familiar name came into play, Phil Lesh, who would later become the bassist for the dead. They recorded songs, Maddie Groves and Long Black, the Long Black Veil on a tape recorder for a radio station, KPFA. Just imagine doing that. 
on a tape recorder too yeah. recording music being like hey we made this can you guys play it oh like nobody does it people do that well they try all the time well, and I'm no, like, the radio no. stations are like no no yeah no. It's a, the answer is always no I, but yeah most of the stuff that gets sent into the radio station is absolute trash it's like they recorded it on a tape recorder in their oh. mom's bathtub or something <laughs> terrible <laughs> Got to start um, somewhere. <laughs> in 1962, Jerry was singing a bunch of bluegrass and folksy sort of tunes, and he was teaching both guitar and banjo. Jerry began performing with a group called the Sleepy Hollow Hog Stompers on guitar, banjo, vocals, and harmonica. And then after meeting Bob Weir, formed a jug band called Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions with Ron McKernan both founding members of the dead and their first show was at magoo's pizza parlor not not of timberland and magoo fame okay so that show was at the pizza place on may 5th 1965 and that place is still standing it's now a furniture store okay here's where the bitches come in and by bitches i mean very nice ladies sarah ruppenthal is jerry garcia's first wife she came into his life in 1963. He met her at a bookstore that he was regularly performing at, and they were married on April 23rd. They had their daughter, Heather, by December 8th. So this is like one whirlwind of a year for him. In 1964, things got even more groovy with the rising popularity of LSD. Jerry had first tried it in 64, saying, It changed everything. The effect was that it freed me because I suddenly realized my little attempt at having a straight life and doing that was really a fiction and just wasn't going to work out. Luckily, I wasn't far enough into it for it to be shattering or anything. It was like a realization that just made me feel immensely relieved. So I guess what he's trying to say here, because he sounds like he's done some drugs. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. (laughs) It sounds like he's saying that he liked LSD because it showed him the possibilities for his life, I guess. Yes. This sounds like an interesting drug. Were I interested in such things, I'd be willing to give this a try with uh, some supervision because you can hurt yourself, obviously, if you don't do it correctly. But I wouldn't know because I don't do drugs. Don't do drugs, kids. You sound guilty. Uh, no. <laughs> you do sound guilty. No, <laughs> I've never actually done it. They do sound interesting, though. Uh, coke and meth and all that other shit, just, I don't understand it. it. You'd see people get completely fucking wrecked on that shit. And it's yeah. like, I don't, why? They're they're seen as not like just mind-altering substances, but the thing that would also unlock your creativity and allow you to be free and experiment mentally and creatively. So like, Obviously, if he can see other sides of like, oh, if my music could be better, I could be doing this differently. You know, all of that would Mm -hmm. be helpful. But it was fine in the early years. However, substance abuse can become a problem and affect that creative process later on if you get too into it or like leads you to try other things that might not be as creatively induced. Stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. I think as far as like LSD goes, the the big thing that you want to worry about is just having a bad trip if i were to do something like that i would like somebody there to supervise me yeah so i don't hurt myself or i'm, I'm not volunteering to supervise you oh, okay. I, have I was wondering you're just hands like i will help you do this <laughs> so there are two references that would be like good to either read or watch there is a documentary on netflix that's interesting but also hilarious it's called have a good trip adventures in psychedelics it's all these comedians and writers that are coming together to like either describe trips they've had or just talk about how Hollywood portrays it, where it's like, when you are taught, say no to drugs, it's all of these fear-mongering things that are going to make you not want to try it, but like nobody in the in the media gets the trips correct. Mm-hmm. You would have to physically try the substance yourself, supervised, like Jake was saying, mm-hmm. and then have your own trip. Um, now, Michael Pollan, who is an author, he usually writes a lot of like food and botany place, or place, botany-based plant books Mm -hmm. about how they affect us as humans. He went on to write a book called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. It's a long-ass title, but for science, he actually, what he did was he took psychedelics. um, He went to like a remote island and you could take the psychedelics. You have somebody there to like guide you through. Mm -hmm. Like, so if they see that you're veering off into like a bad trip they can get you back on like a good path and just have it to where it will they're like your trip um like a tour guide guide. yeah Yeah. 
So um, it was just really interesting listening. Like he can say it obviously better than I could because I have no idea. But <laughs> listening to him talk about that, I was like, that would be actually interesting to try. But it's like not legal. <laughs> um, yeah. And ever wonder how you get good at improvisation? You have to be such an expert that you can just fucking noodle around because your fingers already know what they're doing. You don't even have to think about it. That's, that's such a weird way to catch catfish. What? What are Noodle you talking about? Oh, oh, is that when you put your hand in the mm-hmm. hole? <gasps> yeah, you're in the water and you have to find them under the catfish sitting under the bank and you just find them and like shove your fist down their throat or something. And you pull Ew! them out. It's so weird. <laughs> I've You've never, never seen that before? Bleh, no. I think they, but they live, had a whole TV show about that. I think they live, the they live in like mud banks and yeah. they burrow. They like no. burrow in the mud and so you Mm-mm. just shove your fist in there Mm-mm. and then they're like, yummy, a big old worm. Big ass worm. No, I had a coworker recently that got bit by a catfish. That's how you catch them. Maybe that's why it bit her. Looked like a big old noodle. Ew, uh, noodle arm. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, anyways, these guys would play. I can't fucking comprehend this. They would play five sets a night for five nights a week. But the Im- improvisational playing is what the dead was like loved for. Nobody else was coming close to that talent, letting alone being able to keep. The talent fresh with so many shows per night. Yeah, but when you just, it's natural to you and you don't even have to think about what you're doing to improvise. You're just doing the right things. I don't know. It's it's impressive. Yeah. Um, so the Jug Band evolved into the Warlocks in 1965, but then they had to change their name because they found out that the Velvet Underground was also going by the Warlocks. <laughs> the fucking nerds. Yeah. <laughs> so Jerry opened up a Funk in Wagnall's Dictionary. Uh, to the entry titled Grateful Dead, a dead person, or his angel, showing gratitude to someone who, as an act of charity, arranged their burial. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that he didn't necessarily like the name. None of them really did, but it spread quickly, so they kept using it. And then also Velvet Underground clearly changed their name, too. I liked Warlocks. It'd make for a good sports team name. So the first show billed as Grateful Dead was in San Jose on December 4th, 1965. It was held at novelist Ken Kesey's house, and he was a known advocate of the counterculture. He basically bridged the gap between the beatniks of the 1950s and the hippies of the 1960s. He wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I didn't have to Google that. That I know from memory. It's because you weren't in a bookstore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so he had a series of parties called acid tests where everyone would just drop tabs and get down all night fun fact there's a non-fiction book by tom wolf called the electric kool-aid test that presents a first-hand account of the experiences of ken and his band of merry merry pranksters who traveled the u.s in a colorfully painted school bus and they were obviously famous for their drug use to expand their consciousness yeah that sounds so fucking fun yeah uh they marketed these parties using the phrase can you pass the acid test and they had strobe lights black lights glow in the dark paint basically your average college dorm party thanks ken (laughs) now the back section of spencer's makes sense yeah yeah, Spencer's for anybody outside of the U.S., it, probably Canada, too. It's a store in, you find in a lot of American malls. It's like a novelty thing. You find the black lights and the, the lava lamps and yeah, pop culture. It's like all of that. Yeah. They have posters, movie posters, dumb t-shirts, like mm-hmm. vulgar shit. They have a bunch of dildos. Mm-hmm. Like It's like anything that's vulgar that your parents would fucking hate to see in your room is in Spencer's. Mm-hmm. But they also have like coffee mugs and like just pop culture random With things on yeah. them. I got no. Uh, yeah, they do. <laughs> do they? I was like, I got an office coffee mug from there once, but not. Yeah, that's true. They do have a lot of pop culture yeah. stuff. Yeah, they always had studded belts. I feel like they're a subcategory of hot topic. Like they're probably all owned by the same company. They Could just like be. maneuver the crafts. Spencer's back and forth. was around before hot topic. Spencer's is definitely more. It's one of the older ones. Demo tapes were made at these acid test parties, and some have survived to this day, which is pretty incredible. The first fan-recorded show was probably at the Fillmore in San Francisco on January 8th, 1966. After that came an actual event produced by Ken Kesey called the Trips Festival, and that hosted other psychedelic rock bands. This was basically the inaugural party of the hippie movement. They certainly had that 60s sound to them at this point. Some of the songs even sounded kind of like surfer rockabilly mixed Mm -hmm. to me. When I, while I was listening and they even did just straight up blues songs yeah they pretty much melded everything that was that people were using guitars for they were like hmm, yeah, let's fucking do it <laughs> um, it's, it's cool that they have those mixtapes too because the band themselves didn't like performing in a studio they didn't like recording because the audience wasn't there they didn't get the feedback from the crowd True. so they didn't feel right being 
you know, doing like not live studio albums. Okay, so now they're the Grateful Dead. They're possibly smoking DMT and they had found a bunch of support from Ken Kesey and his homies. Um, They found a financial backer that got them a house and equipment and his name was Owsley Stanley, a.k.a. (laughs) the Acid King. Ken also had a gaggle of bitches following him called the Merry Pranksters. (laughs) I'm, yes. I'm using that the next time I see you out with a group of your friends. Oh, there goes Alex and her gaggle mm. of bitches. I'm not even offended by it. Um, so one of those in the gaggle was Carolyn Adams. She was known as Mountain Girl or MG. Um, she had a son with Ken Kesey, who, and, uh, but then she also married another one of the merry pranksters. In 1966, she would move in with Jerry Garcia at the house the band was at. Jerry and his wife, Sarah, had been separated for a while at that point, and they divorced finally in 1967. So um, Mountain Girl became the mother of Garcia's second and third daughters, Annabelle and Teresa. Mountain Girl. Yes, Mountain Girl. In October of 1967, the Grateful Dead house was raided by police. Phil, Bob, and Ron were charged with uh, marijuana-related offenses, while Garcia was not even arrested. Apparently, they arrested 11 people. They probably ran out of handcuffs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many are you supposed to bring? Right. Yeah. The article I read from Rolling Stone dated uh, November 9th, 1967, says the cops uh, didn't have a warrant and busted into the house even after being denied entry. Uh, Jerry and Mountain Girl weren't there at the time, so that's why they didn't get arrested. Uh, Everybody else spent about six hours in jail before being released on bail, and they held a press conference in their living room, which you can Hmm. see the clips of on YouTube. It's actually kind of interesting. Their charges were eventually reduced, and they just pretty much had to pay relatively small fines. I mean, $100, $200. Back then, it was a lot of money. But, you know, it's not terrible, I guess. Um, Also in 1967, they had some major performances under their belts with the Mantra Rock Dance. The Hare Krishna founder, Bhaktivedanta Swami, was there, along with Allen Ginsberg and Janis Joplin. They released their first album, The Grateful Dead, with Warner Brothers in 1967. And the band is said to have been so successful at this point because of their ability to never play a song the same way twice. Uh, Garcia would just go on these long improvisational solos, and then he would invite other band members to play and solo with him. So like I said, it was very noodly and jammy. Mmm, noodles and jam. So weird, weird spaghetti. <laughs> I saw that after I printed this out. I was like trying to figure out which pages what? were which, and all I saw was noodles and jam. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I was like, I, I'll just figure that yeah. out later. <laughs> so also as far as like not playing the same song twice, this is kind of something that we haven't really discussed yet on the podcast. But if, if you think about music now and going out to shows and, you know, hearing all this feedback on the Internet and people commenting and having opinions on every single thing ever. You know how people go and they'll see a band and they're like, well, they just didn't sound like they did on the album. And it's like people yeah. expect that a band is going to sound the same every time they hear them and that's not always the case people have their off game or they want to improvise it's they're not robots you got to let them play they're musicians it's pretty cool that you can go see them because it makes each it makes each concert a completely different experience right and it makes people go to see them multiple times yeah you know it's not just like oh i've already seen them i don't want to see them again right because it's not because that happens right you just automatically know like i could see them 1200 times and every show would be different Mm mm-hmm If the Grateful Dead wasn't doing enough playing at this point, Jerry was also doing a ton of session work. He played on over 50 studio albums from bluegrass to funk to reggae to country. He was helping people like Tom Fogarty, Jefferson Airplane, Paul Penna, Bob Dylan, and more. Um, And Paul Penn is somebody that we talked about maybe covering once. And he plays on the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song, Teach Your Children on Steel Guitar. But not accordion. <laughs> or banjo, apparently. Jake's really caught up on this lack of accordion thing. <laughs> I'm really, kind of mad. But he also, re- turned it in for guitar. Before we started recording, we were downstairs, and when you had like gone to the bathroom, and Jake and I were talking about because I was making the playlist, and I was like, it gives me like Crosby, Stills, Nash vibes. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, he played on one of their albums. Yeah. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Back in the Grateful Dead right now, we are looking at Phil Lesh on bass, Bob Weir on rhythm guitar, Ron McKernan on keyboards, percussion, and harmonica, Garcia on lead 
guitar and sharing vocals with Weir and McKernan. Uh, Bill Kreutzmann was on drums, and then a second drummer named Mickey Hart was added in 1967. Uh, were they on that list of bands with two drummers you had going, Cassie? <laughs> I still have it linked on the old one. Yes, they were on it. I said it. I, think, I believe. What, what episode was that? Okay, it was Leonard Skinner, and you can't only have two drummers and call it a band. You need other people, too. That's not what I, that's not what your point was. Yeah, it was because one of the guys, Ronnie or somebody, I don't fucking remember, one of them, they came together and there were two of them and they both played drums and they were like, <laughs> well, one of us better play guitar or something because this is going to be a weird fucking band. And I said, you can't have, you can't start a band with only two drummers like you need other people. And you were like, and with this band has you two drummers. You said you can't have a band with two drummers is what the phrase was. Oh, that's not what I meant. And then I said, I will prove you, you wrong remember when with you, this entire... Do you remember when you deleted the entire mini episode? It was one time. <laughs> Ugh. And it was an accident. We're pointing out each other's mistakes. <laughs> okay. According to Bill Kreutzmann, the first drummer, um, in the 70s, the band was using a ton of cocaine. In 1970, they had some infamous shows at the warehouse in New Orleans, staying at a hotel on Bourbon Street. The hotel was raided, and surprise, surprise, they had a shitload of drugs. They posted bail, they played their next show, and this event is memorialized in the song Truckin', one of the few dead songs to hit the charts. I, I quoted the part from the song so it's if you got a warrant i guess you're gonna come in busted down on bourbon street set up like a bowling pin knocked <laughs> down it gets to wearing thin they just won't let you be okay so also in 1970 jerry's mother was in a car crash um, jerry would often visit her she died a month later in september mm -hmm. um so he's gone through a tough time as you can imagine, bands with a million people have a million lineup changes. Leonard Skinner, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> so they underwent many through the 70s, but Ron McKernan actually died in March of 1973 after complications from liver damage. The band continued on, forming Grateful Dead Records and releasing a new album, Wake the Wake of the Flood in 1973. <laughs> Wake the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a corn song. What? Is it, wake it is, the flood. Yeah, it is. Wake the fuck up. It is? Yeah. Uh, so this was huge for them commercially. So they capitalized on that and released another album in 1974 called From the Mars Hotel. They performed some concerts at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco in 1974, which eventually became compiled into a concert movie in 77. And the band took a hiatus from touring. Yeah. So the film yeah. released in 77 was directed by Garcia himself and captured a five night run of shows in Winterland. Two albums were released in conjunction with the film and the concert run called Steal Your Face and the Grateful Dead movie soundtrack. The concert footage was shot on six film cameras while the audio was recorded onto two 16-track machines. Damn. And as far as the movie goes, like in 1974, when I guess Jerry had this idea, they already knew they were going to take a break from touring. So he had developed this idea to film the show, so like to send the movie out as a sort of substitute for the, pa the, for the fans because they wouldn't be touring. Mm -hmm. Now, like Alex mentioned, bands with 7,000 members usually have a constant rotation of people playing for them. However, when Mickey Hart had joined on stage during the last... It was the second set of the final show they played. Um, I guess it kind of solidified him into his permanent return to the band because he had like left and come back a couple times. Um, but he just decided that that's where he needed to be, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Um, during the filming of these sets, they had a ton of mixing and recording problems with the keyboardist Ned Lagan's equipment, and a lot of his parts had to be cut from the film. Damn, that yeah. sucks. Not only was their hiatus influenced by the stress of putting out the movie, Jerry's also having lots of lady issues and mm. drug issues. If you recall, he had left his first wife and gotten married to Carolyn Adams, a.k.a. Mountain, mountain Woman. Mountain Girl. Oh. Um, and then in 1974, he began a relationship with Deborah Coons. Around the same time, Jerry tried heroin in a brothel on tour in Europe, a smokable form called Persian. Jerry left Mountain Girl for Deborah Coons in 1975. <laughs> then he broke up with Coons in 1977 and got back with Mountain Girl. She got pissed off because he was uh, still using a ton of drugs, so she broke up with him again in 1978, 
try to keep up. Uh, no, can you repeat all that? I got lost. That's more members in the band has gone through at this point. That's three women, but it's just back and forth and it's back like, and yeah. forth. He was he's married. He got around. divorced. He found Mountain Girl. They got, she's fucking everybody else too. And then he's, he's got fucking like three kids. Then. She had a kid with uh, somebody had, else too. Yeah, she had a kid with Ken Kesey, mm-hmm. the guy who was doing the parties, but she was married to somebody else. And then she got with Jerry and then had two of his kids. And then he's fucking Deborah. And then Deborah's like, I don't know, break up with her. And, and y'all then. like reality you TV. Know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm into it, dude. 60s free love. Yeah, he was there very, very much hippies. into yeah. that concept. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I guess I missed some albums in there, but they're on their eighth studio album by 1975 <laughs> and back on the road in 1976 with Arista Records. So their own label had folded at this point. The dead were signed by the man, the myth legend, Mr. Clive Davis himself. Um, he had been interested in working with them for years and he had added the band to a label with the agreement that they would work under an out as an outside producer. Um, producer Keith Olsen was chosen to aid in the making of the record, so the band temporarily moved out to L.A. because Olsen preferred working out Sound City. Terrapin Station came out in 1977, and several of the members, they're hooked on various drugs at this point. Yes. Um, they were on pretty thin ice by 1978, and then their keyboardist, Key Gosho, <laughs> I don't fucking know how to say this dude's name. His name uh, was Key. Key Godshow. <laughs> he played the keyboard. Left in 1979. Whoever that guy is. So he left the band in 79. And then he died in a car accident in 1980. And then their next keyboardist, Brent Midland, joined. And he would also overdose and die in 1990. That's Jeez. the band's third keyboardist to die. But we'll get there. Mm. Um, so at this point... In the 1980s, the Deadhead subculture is roaring. The band knew that they would have to keep touring to capitalize on it, so luckily that meant that they could take a break from being in the studio, which they did not like. Which is cool and all, but life on the road is tough, especially for a bunch of people on drugs. Yeah, It was a constant party. Garcia had developed a $700 a day drug habit, mm. and uh, he wasn't just touring with the Grateful Dead. He was also doing solo gigs and working with the Jerry Garcia band. Some say that they were working so much just to be able to pay for their addiction. Shit, I wish I had a $700 a day making money habit. That would be Fuck. nice. <laughs> just spending that on drugs. I'm like, well, how much? what fucking drugs are you? How much do All drugs cost? I mean, can you well, do you have how like a day off? He's doing cocaine and heroin, heroin. and... I don't know. I'm imagining that the heroin was probably expensive. Probably. Okay, now in <laughs> 1981, Mountain Girl Adams and Jerry got married. Yes, they did. Last time we spoke, broke up in they broke up in 1978, but this time they got married and it was largely because they were both fucked by Uncle Sam with taxes. Wow. Call it an open relationship. Um, Adam stayed in Oregon and Jerry stayed in San Francisco. He was rooming with various band members and their manager, Rock Scully. Now, Scully had been with the band since the 60s, but he was fired in 1984 after it was discovered that he was embezzling from Garcia's profits and enabling his addictions. I bet that he thought if he could keep Jerry high, then yeah, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't realize that the money was missing. I'm sure that's exactly what it was. And the other people around were like, mm, Bruh. we know what's going on here. So speaking of his addictions, the band was kicking ass in the early 80s, but Garcia's health was taking a giant nosedive. He was noticeably different on stage. And like with Jocko, his shows were getting really inconsistent. Uh, constant cigarette smoking was messing with Jerry's voice and he was gaining weight too. In 1984, Garcia was, uh, he was left just like resting his chin on the microphone. You remember the microphones at the radio station we used to work at were like crusted up with old man spit and they smelled like asshole. (laughs) Um, It was an endless tour that had to keep on going because of the financial risks and constant drug use. At this point, Garcia had been addicted to heroin for a whole decade. So we talked a bit about this on the Kurt Cobain episode that's on Patreon, but like the mad, like the toll that all of that heroin use over 10 years would take on someone's body and their health and like decline. So like when we talked about the Kurt Cobain stuff, like obviously the the tolerance was high. Mm -hmm. The more you use heroin, the more your tolerance builds up. So like any dose after that could be an overdose because you don't know how much you're injecting over time. Yeah. And for him to have a $700 a day drug habit, I mean, whatever else he was doing, what we learned in the Kurt Cobain episode, because I don't know, I don't know shit about heroin, um, but you have to inject yourself like multiple times to maintain the high. It's not like you, it's not like, 
meth where i think you can smoke it and you'll be high for like a week. i don't know a long <laughs> fucking time heroin you have to continue to use to maintain your high throughout the day so that means if his tolerance is building yeah so it just it's a crazy amount of drugs but the band held an intervention with Jerry in January of 1985. They basically made him choose between the group or the drugs, and he decided on a rehabilitation program in Oakland. So a few days later, Jerry was arrested for possession, and after Mm. that, he had to go to a diversion program. And it was surprisingly successful. Throughout 1985, Garcia weaned himself off of drugs and was completely sober by 1986. Like, holy shit, after 10 years? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, but the the damage, unfortunately, had already been done. In July of 1986, Garcia fell into a diabetic coma. Instead of drugs, he had developed very, very bad eating habits. He wasn't hydrating properly, and he was at a pretty... He was pretty unhealthy weight-wise. So, I, oh, sorry. Go I was going to say, I imagine it'd be pretty hard to have healthy eating habits when you're always on tour, too. Yeah, like, I that bet. that can't be easy. And when you already have a personality that's like you're you get addicted to things like if you can't have this then now you can have food and now yeah you know it's just it's really unfortunate so he had gained a lot of weight grateful dead went on their first stadium tour and garcia relapsed like immediately um, fell into a coma and woke up five days later while he was unconscious garcia says after i came out of my coma i had this image of myself as these little hunks of protoplasm that were stuck together like stamps with perforations between them that you could snap off <laughs> not me over here googling protoplasm why like what is he what is he even talking about he just sounds like yeah, he's, he's still on that lsd <laughs> yeah Jesus. he's like permanently tripping like what the fuck does that even mean <laughs> um after coming to garcia had to relearn basic skills and even learn how to play guitar again after several months he was back with the jerry garcia band and the dead um, once he was back, the group released In the Dark in 1987. This one was their most commercially successful and best-selling album, and they were feeling good about it. That, combined with Garcia's health improving, helped the band's chemistry enormously. Yes, uh, this album had the song Touch of Grey on it, which I think most people probably know, um, mm-hmm. and turned out to be their one and only top 40 single hitting, uh, number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, I remember the song mostly because of the the... I remember watching the music video and it's where they, they start out just like normal people. Then they turn into skeletons and you know, mm. however old I was, I just thought that was the coolest oh, shit ever. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I was like, Guilty. it's like touch metal. And then I didn't even know what metal was back then, but See, it wasn't metal. Yeah. It, wasn't, no, it metal. wasn't even remotely. Yeah. But also fun fact, uh, same year, 1987, uh, famous ice cream maker, uh, Ben and Jerry's created a flavor in honor of Jerry Garcia and grateful dead. Called Cherry Garcia. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, it was their first ice cream named after a rock legend and uh, one of their most popular fan suggestions. It is cherry ice cream with cherries and fudge flakes, and they are still making it to this day. The Grateful Dead had also been featuring keyboardist Brent Midland more as a frontman, so the help from him was definitely necessary with everything that was going on with Jerry. Midland was with the group for three more years until a speedball overdose in 1990 mentioned earlier. Speedball, I don't understand. It is a mix of cocaine and heroin, heroin, which to me seem like opposite drugs. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's either injected or snorted. And this obviously, you know, so he died after this um, and it took a huge toll on the band and on Garcia. That's how we lost Chris Farley. It was really hard on Jerry. Um, The band did end up adding Vince Welnick and Bruce Hornsby on keyboards. Bruce, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. He was born in Williamsburg, Virginia. Okay. (laughs) Um, At this point, Garcia was legally married to Mountain Girl. (laughs) But as we mentioned earlier, it was more so out of necessity than love. Uh, Garcia had an unofficial marriage to a chick named Manasha Matheson in 1990. They had a daughter together, and Jerry was looking forward to finally, like, take taking the opportunity to be a father. Hmm. He had three it's about children time. prior to that, but now he's like, okay, I'm going to fucking do this. Hmm. Um, in 1991, the group had been touring nonstop for five years, and Garcia needed a break. No kidding. He's been going for, what, 20 years now straight? Yeah, something like that. 
It's been insane. Yeah, all the albums and the movie and geez, it's just nonstop. Five gigs a night, five nights a week. I mean, so Jerry had been using prescription opiates, but he had a brief relapse to heroin in the early 90s. He was faced with another intervention after the tour ended. And this time, Garcia decided to check himself into a methadone clinic and do it his way. Because like a lot of, with a lot of things, if you want to make changes, you have to be the person to decide to do it. People can try and convince you all you want, but if you don't want to do it, it's not going to happen. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it right. Thank you for that. <laughs> Lovely. You guys missed the dance that was associated with it. Interpretive dance. Um, so Jerry was able to return to performing in 1992, but his diabetes flared up again, causing the tour to be canceled. So Jerry decided to become a vegetarian. He lessened his smoking and he lost some weight. He was trying, but physically and mentally, Jerry was in a decline through 1994. But you know what? This dude was still getting it in. And by it, I mean his dick. Yeah. At this point in 1994, Jerry and Adams, who was Mountain Girl, they were divorced. He was still with Menasha and his daughter. But Jerry had an affair with his former girlfriend, Barbara Meyer, and then he proposed to her. Their relationship lasted until Barbara questioned his drug abuse. So Jerry got back together with his way back girlfriend, Deborah Coons, whom he left Adams for in 1975, remember? And then he legally married her in 1994 on Valentine's Day. How are you keeping all of these women straight? I, t- I'm telling you, I had to like go through it five times to oh make sure gosh. that everything. Because I was like, wait, what? It's <laughs> confusing just switching between Mountain Girl and Adams. <laughs> but now that I know those are both the same That's person. That's the same person. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit easier. She has a nickname, at least. All the other ones, I'm like, come on, what's your fucking right. nickname? Yeah, like, I can't keep y'all straight. Yeah. Uh, so where were we? 1994. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, amongst all of this relationship stuff that is completely <laughs> confusing, um, the Grateful Dead were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but Jerry disagreed with the notion of the Hall of Fame and didn't go. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'd, something I would do. Yeah. Um, the other dead members attended the ceremony and brought a life-size cardboard cutout of Jerry with them, which Amazing. I would I also do. That sounds absolutely hilarious and awesome. That's fun. That yeah. was very fun. Cardboard cutouts are fun. <laughs> so due to his declining health, Jerry was in pain. He relapsed a second time. Uh, he was really, really struggling. So he checked himself into the Betty Ford Center in July of 1995 for a couple of weeks. And then next, he went into the Serenity Knowles Center. On August 9th, 1995, Jerry died at the age of 53 in his room at the rehab center of a heart attack. The drugs, the weight, sleep, apnea, smoking, and diabetes all played a role in killing him. At Jerry's funeral, his... These bitches. He's just got a gaggle of bitches. And at his funeral, his current wife, Deborah Kuhn, said that she was the love of Jerry's life. And then his... Is she sure about that? (laughs) (laughs) And then his former wives, Meyer, which is the chick he proposed to in 1994, and Rupenthal, his first wife, they both stood up and were like, no, he said that to me. I'm glad they said it. So they're all like fighting over him at the funeral. (laughs) Uh, according to Henry Kaiser, a fellow uh, guitarist from back in the day in the San Fran area, uh, Jerry is, quote, the most recorded guitarist in history with more than 2,200 Grateful Dead Holy concerts shit. and 1,000 Jerry Garcia band concerts captured on tape, uh, as well as numerous studio sessions. There are about 15,000 hours of his guitar work wow. preserved That's for the wild. ages. Cool. Yes. Uh, also... Uh, the Jerry Garcia Amphitheater opened in 2005 in the Excelsior District of San Francisco, uh, near where Jerry grew up. First event uh, held there was Jerry Day 2005. Uh, the celebration is held every year around fall time, celebrating the life of Jerry Garcia. There is also a statue of Jerry's right hand, you know, the one missing the finger, <laughs> what the fuck? located in the Santa Barbara Bowl, which I guess is like an amphitheater as well. Mm-hmm. It's a music venue. Um, it's called. It's in an area called Jerry Garcia Glen. Uh, it was unveiled in 2009, uh, and the statue obviously commemorates the life of the legendary guitarist and the fact that he couldn't flip you off. Not that he would. Mm-hmm. Jerry, by all accounts, was a super nice guy. Give you the shirt off his back type. My, I connected Weird Al to him. <laughs> uh, although Weird Al never did a Grateful Dead parody or use them in any of his polkas, he did pay tribute to Jerry and Grateful Dead during his 2018 ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour. 
he performed he performed a Grateful Dead version of his song what? Dare to Be Stupid, which can be seen on YouTube if anybody is interested. Yeah, I have to look that up. Yeah, it's they're like their cell phone videos from out in the audience, but you know they're they're all right. Yeah, it was hmm. it was interesting. In 2015, one of Jerry's wives, uh, Menasha, and daughter Keelan started the 501c3 nonprofit Jerry Garcia Foundation, supporting environmental, artistic, and humanitarian causes through the beauty of music and art. In 2018, they also launched the Jerry Garcia Music Arts, which is an independent label. Oh, nice. So damn. In 2015, the group revived themselves as Dead and Company to begin touring again. They, you know, were missing out on all this capitalistic bullshit. Well, so, the music <laughs> festival started to really kind of pop true. back yeah. up and start booming. So they're booming. like, let's play. Yeah, because um, they're the ones who, like, started all that shit. Right. <laughs> the band has incorporated material that the Grateful Dead never played live with gems such as A Hard Rain's A Gonna Fall by oh, Bob Dylan, Shaky Ground by The Temptations, Milestones by Miles Davis, and Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes by Paul Simon. While well, the group has done a fine job of showcasing songs that represent all eras of Grateful Dead music. Now, in 2021, which is this year, they have 31 shows scheduled in this year alone. Um, they're still actively touring. The current lineup consists of Grateful Dead members Bob Weir, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzmann, mm-hmm. Oitel Burbridge. Oitel. 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 Oitel Burbage. Jeff Chiminti, along with your boy John Mayer. Yeah, they played at Bonnaroo actually a couple of did you see years. Him? Yeah, I did for like one song because it was really sure. late and I was tired as fuck. But um, yeah. yeah, they played a couple of years ago when I went. Well, the playlist is ready. Cool. Uh, if you want to check out the playlist, then it will be in the description for this video. Um, it's on a completely separate account. So we've got the Death by Music podcast account, which is what you would be listening to this on. And then on Spotify, we have the Death by Podcast team, which has all of our musical playlists. Yeah. And then, I don't know, in a couple of weeks, me and Cassie are going to be going to Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo. I which just is, bought some fanny packs. Yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to do some LSD. We're going to smoke DMT. We're going to inject PCP. And we're going <laughs> to... Buy the gallon. <laughs> <laughs> you know earlier when we talked about tone that was a joke guys we're yeah. not going yes. to inject pcp i don't even know how to do pcp like i really don't understand and if i did know how i still wouldn't do it oh isn't that the names. one where uh, that that people strip brain. naked and like they, punch holes in walls they, think they're they're like, like, they, they turn into superman superhuman strength like mm-hmm. lift a car yeah and your muscles are literally ripping off of okay the i things would imagine that attached to because you're like i'd imagine a gallon of that would uh probably fuck you up it's going to be a crazy couple of weeks. So Bonnaroo's in two weeks, two weekends for us. So I don't know. Honestly, we might have to take another week off because we're going to, uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Mm. We're going to have to do a lot of research. Oh, I'm going to be a gone at Dragon Con. Oh, shit. All right, guys. I'm really sorry. <laughs> we, we have tried so hard we to maintain consistency with releasing the episodes for this podcast, but it's been life. hard we it have is, a life too it's been really it's been really tough especially yeah. trying to double up the seasons i mean you guys have heard us talk about it so thank you for being patient with us and like not hating us because we are not releasing them consistently every single week but we're gonna do these last five episodes of season three um and we will continue to release episodes for our patreon season but we're basically going to take off for the rest of the year because we need a little bit of a break. So time is the thing that we need the most of and we don't have any of it. But we'll, we'll put shit up when we're at Bonnaroo. Oh, yeah. um, we'll be posting and... I have some fun shirts. Yes. She has... Cassie bought shirts that are like, say no to drugs. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, everybody's going to offer us drugs now that you're going to have this shirt. And she's got one shirt that I think it, it was says... strategic. It, it says <laughs> no. hugs, not drugs. And then when she wears her hugs, not drugs shirt, I'm going to wear my fuck off shirt. Yeah. I was like, if I buy this shirt, <laughs> is somebody... Like, is this just going to have people unwarrantedly coming up and trying to hug me? And Alex was like, you wear that and I'll wear the one that says fuck off and we'll be fine. I was like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be... It's going to be awesome. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We will have mini-sodes coming out. I believe our next one is on Paula Abdul and her plane crash that probably didn't happen. Um, and that's going to be on Monday. Make sure you're subscribed to us. Get us at us on Patreon. And rest in peace. Bye. Later.
Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Artwork by Mike Johnson. Writing and production by Cassie Gardner, Alex Motler, and Jake.